Good morning. Welcome once again to Element Church here in lovely Tampa, Florida. It's good to see everybody today. You look well. Thank you, Nicholas. Nikolai, call him. Um, my name is Benjamin, if we haven't met, one of the pastors here. And so this is our Behold series. This is week three. So we talked about what it means to behold, to really behold, to start to take in the glory of the incarnation of God becoming a person, a real person. And then last week, Brett talked about marvel. He talked about the wonder, the awe, at the mystery of the incarnation. It's something that we will forever think about, but never really fully get the mystery of the way that God sent the Redeemer to this world. Today, we're going to talk about believe. Believe. So think back, if you can, all the way back to 2012. If you can. Um, well, well, if my math is correct, it was about seven years ago. Um, so there was a, a little indie, uh, small boutique uh, indie film about a group of quirky friends who had to get along called The Avengers. I don't remember if you... It wasn't a very big deal, but... Um, <clears throat> but there was a movie called The Avengers, right? And uh, so at this point, we have seen all of these team-up movies, these comic book movies, right? So it's not as big of a deal to see all these superheroes in the same movie. But back then, this was... Huge. Do you remember? Do you remember how great Angelo remembers? Um, <clears throat> we had never seen that. We'd never seen all these superheroes in the same movie, at least quality, big budget movie. I'm sure there are some things out there that are hilarious. But um, we'd seen nothing like it, right? Nothing like it before. And so it was mind blowing to see them all together. Um, we'd never seen comic book action on film look quite like that, that Battle of New York. Iron Man is flying up in the, into the portal, and they're all coming down, and, and the camera's following him. It's incredible, right? It's incredible. It blew our minds. It was something, well, to behold, wasn't it? And it was more than just like see or look or watch this movie. It was something to behold, the cinematic explosion of awesomeness that was occurring in front of our eyes. It's not hard to see where they got the name Marvel all those years ago, right? Because as that movie climaxed in the Battle of New York, we, we marveled. Or may, am, am I the only nerdy one in the room? I'm not even the biggest nerd in the room. Not even close. <clears throat> but I marveled at this, at the action and the story and the characters and the visuals and the computer animation that was so flawless and seamless. And what happens as you behold this spectacle and you begin to marvel, you, you start to believe. You start to believe it. You're totally enraptured in the story and the action. These, these aren't actors who are breaking for lunch in a few minutes, right? These, this is happening. I believed that it's real, at least for those few minutes. Because that's kind of what happens when there's something that we behold the glory of and we come to that place of wonder, of marveling. From that place, 
there can be a deep belief that comes. So we do everything around here, as you know, with a lot of intention, with a lot of purpose. So there's a reason that believe is the third week in the series and not the first one. All right, when I was growing up in my faith tradition, believe was a word used a lot, sort of a silver bullet word, right? Like, just believe. Oh, okay. We flip the belief switch on, everything's fine, right? I got the head knowledge right, so we're all set. But that's not the kind of believe that we're talking about this morning, not quite. Because when we stop to behold and marvel at the incarnation of God, the believing part becomes a genuine response to that truth, a genuine response. That way the believing becomes more than just a simple storing of, of head knowledge because believing that's preceded by beholding and marveling is more like what I would call a heart knowing, a heart knowing. And what I mean by that, a heart knowing, something we know in our hearts that's beyond thought, it's beyond words, it's a heart knowing. It's deeply owning the mystery and the beauty and the implications of the incarnation in our hearts. So today we're going to look at someone uh, who had fully owned this belief, like I'm talking about, and the implications of the incarnation. And his name was Simeon. His name was Simeon. So a bit of background. Um, so Mary and Joseph were good Jewish folks, right? They followed the law. They knew what to do um, as Jewish people. So they knew that around 40 days, they had to take Jesus to Jerusalem. So some scholars say they probably hung around in Bethlehem for those 40 days and then just went on a few miles to Jerusalem because Mary had some things to do after giving childbirth by law, some purification rites she had to do as a good Jewish lady. And uh, Jesus needed to be, you know, consecrated as the firstborn of the family, right? As the firstborn male. So they went on to Jerusalem, to the temple, to do these things. And here's what happens. Luke chapter 2, in, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, this is so beautiful, verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 33, the child's father and mother marveled, there you go, at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul 
2. All right, so imagine this. You have a newborn baby, and it's Baby Dedication Sunday here at church, right? Oh, what a nice day. Everyone's dressed up, and the baby is dressed up with a little bow tie or a little ruffles or whatever and those, those baby headband things for the girls. Whatever it is, they're very dressed up. They're looking so cute. You're so excited for baby dedication. And you're standing up here holding the baby, and Pastor Melody is about to do the dedication stuff. And then out of nowhere, an old guy that you have never met just walks up here and takes the baby out of your arms. That would be interesting, right? But then he quickly starts to speak this beautiful prophetic blessing over your child about how they're going to bless the world and be light and bring glory and all of these things. Okay, we're doing a little bit better. I mean, that's pretty, pretty beautiful. But then he turns to the mom and he says, by the way, the blessing your child will bring to the world is going to be extremely opposed uh, to the point where um, your soul is going to be pierced with grief over all this. Thank you. Good night. So <clears throat> that's normal, right? But can you imagine how bizarre it, but beautiful this moment, maybe confusing this moment might have been for Mary and Joseph? I think a lot of scholars think that they probably didn't fully, completely understand what was going on with their son Jesus at this point. They knew something was going on. They knew what they were told by the angels. They knew what they had seen, what they had heard to that point. The scriptures keep saying, and Mary treasured it in her, in, her, in her heart, right? She pondered it in her heart because they didn't fully grasp it. And how could they at that point? But you know who I think, I think I, I know who got it. I think Simeon, I think he was there. I think he got it. Some say that he's the first person that we know of who knew that that little 40-day-old baby was the Messiah. And not just the Messiah, but knew, according to the prophecies, what was going to happen with this Messiah. So let's get into the headspace of this Simeon. So verse 25 said he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, for Israel to be consoled, right? So let's put this into perspective. So from the end of the prophets to this time, they say it's around like 450 years, right? 450 years or so. So for the Jews who were alive when Jesus was born, this was almost ancient history, right? This was, this was almost ancient history to them, this Messiah, these Messiah prophecies and that someone's going to come along and make things right. Not to mention, as you know, the region is dominated by the Roman Empire at the time. And because of the Jewish folks' affinity for armed rebellion, there were lots of Roman soldiers all around, right, trying to keep the law in order um, in that region. So when we read that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, well, that's not a small statement. That's not a small thing, is it? Not at all. That was belief. That was faith. He had, and everyone else had, 
every reason to have forgotten about the Messiah at all or just doubted that it would ever happen. But Simeon believed. He'd been given that word that he was going to see this Messiah, and he believed. I wonder if we could learn something from this old man, maybe something about faith when it seems like the dark principalities or systems of the world are actually the ones that are in control like Rome was for him. Maybe we could learn something from Simeon about faith when there's a lot of waiting between the promises and the fulfillment of said promises. Maybe we could learn that when we wait on the promises of God and walk in communion with the Spirit, that we will see them come to pass, but almost never in the ways that we could have imagined. Almost never in the ways that we expect. Is that true, church? Is that true? Yeah. Do you think that Simeon expected to run into the Messiah that day as a 40-day-old baby? All he knew was he would see the Messiah before he died, right? He would believe that. Do you think that's what he expected? An infant, a poor baby? As far as he knew, he could have been looking for a conquering hero on a white horse, or at least a grown-up, right? At least a man. But he found the Messiah as a poor baby in the arms of a teenage traveler. So how did Simeon know this was the Messiah? He knew he would see the Messiah, but how did he know this was the Messiah? This six-week-old baby. I think he knew because he was looking. I think he saw because he was looking. He was looking for the Redeemer. He was, not, he was not diminished in his waiting for the promises of God to come true so the suffering of Israel could end. He used the waiting as the watching time. Maybe Simeon was used, so used to looking for the Redeemer that it became the way he looked at everything. Did you hear that? Maybe Simeon was so used to looking for the Redeemer that it became the way he looked at everything. God's unfulfilled promises to him did not become instruments of suffering. Instead, they inspired a hopeful confidence that blossomed into trust. You ever felt like that? God's unfulfilled promises felt like instruments of torture? Be honest. It's okay. Instruments of suffering, but that's not how Simeon held on to the promises of God, not as instruments of suffering, but instead he allowed the promises of God that had yet to be fulfilled, that he had yet to see, inspire a hopeful confidence that blossomed into trust. Maybe Simeon's belief had made that epic journey from the head to the heart from the believe and know what's right, quote-unquote, to I own this truth in my heart, a heart knowing that changes everything. Because when we're living 
out of that place of watching and waiting for our Redeemer to do what he does, we start to see the redemption threads everywhere. Even in a poor Jewish baby born to an immigrant out of wedlock. It's like the Bader-Meinhof effect. Oh, you've never heard of the Bader-Meinhof effect? You, you have, and you've experienced it. I guarantee it. Here's what it is. It happens with cars a lot. Here's what it is. Have you ever started shopping for a new car or maybe bought a new car? And then what happens as you drive around over the next couple of weeks? You see it everywhere. And it could be like a 1988 pink Impala. It doesn't matter. You will see a 1988 pink Impala everywhere you look, right? In every parking lot and on the highway. How does that happen? Has there been an influx of that type of car that you just bought or that you just shopped for in the area you live in just because you looked at it? Well, no, of course not. What's happening is that you're noticing the car everywhere you look because now you own one yourself. That is the belief that sinks from the head into the heart knowing. When we own the truth of God's promises to make all the broken places in our lives and in the world right through Jesus, when we live like redemption is the reality and the mending wholeness of the coming shalom is the reality, then we start to see it everywhere. Even in the small and unlikely places. Especially in the small and unlikely places. I always like Charlie Brown. Like, who doesn't like Charlie Brown? Right? I used to read the Peanuts comic strip in the newspaper every Sunday as a child. That sentence makes me sound old, really old. I might as well have said I used to jitterbug my way down to the five and dime <laughs> for a nickel's worth of taffy. But um, I did. I read, I read Peanuts every, every week in the, the, the funny papers. There you go. Um, so Charlie Brown, they started making these animated specials, right, of Charlie Brown and, and the Peanuts gang. And so they made that Christmas special, Charlie Brown Christmas special. And if you haven't seen that, well, there's still time to get right with the Lord and, and see it before Christmas. So a few years ago, it became one of my absolute favorite Christmas specials of all time. Because I realized something about Charlie Brown Christmas special. It's about Jesus. It is about Jesus. So if you don't quite recall the storyline, spoiler alert, but you've only had about 60 years, so that's on you. So Charlie Brown is um, disillusioned with the consumerism that surrounds him during the Christmas season, right? Um, he's always having these existential crises um, as an eight-year-old or however old they're supposed to be. Um, and he can't quite find the Christmas spirit, the Christmas joy that he's looking for, right? So he decides, or he's kind of convinced, uh, as usual, to direct the school Christmas play, and maybe that'll fix everything. So, of course, things aren't going so well with that, so he decides that they need a Christmas tree for the set, and Lucy tells him they need a big, shiny metal tree, a big, shiny metal tree, and that would fix everything. 
But in that famous scene, Charlie Brown goes to the tree lot with Linus and is drawn toward that tree. That one. That's not, I don't think that you could even call that a tree. But it was like a branch that fell off of another tree. But that's the one he is drawn toward. That's why you got to love Charlie Brown, right? you got to love him. Instead of the big, metal, colorful, shiny trees around him, he goes to the small and the humble, and he sees the beauty in it somehow. And eventually they come back, and Linus recites Luke 2 to everyone, and someone's in the sound booth and puts a spotlight on him magically. Somehow, I don't know how that happened. But he recites Luke 2 to everyone about the Christmas story, and the tree ends up bringing everyone together. It has a happy ending. I don't know if you saw that coming in a cartoon, <clears throat> but it does. Uh, the tree brings them all together. Charlie Brown knew that that tree was the one that he was drawn to, right? The one that could maybe lead him to that Christmas spirit, that fulfillment he was looking for. How would he know a tree like that would do something like that? I think he just knew when he saw it. He knew when he saw it because he was looking for it. The tree is like Jesus, guys, small and humble, but Simeon recognized the small and humble Redeemer because he was watching for the redemption of all things. He was looking for that Redeemer. So maybe the incarnation teaches us the same thing. Maybe Christmas can help us too to expect redemption everywhere, but not just because of the prophet's of ancient Israel said so. But friends, because we've already beheld his glory in our lives, because we have marveled at the great things he's already done, because nothing has ever or can ever stop redemption and light and peace from coming to this earth. Nothing can cut down the tree of redemption. Or even if it is cut down, it can't be killed. What am I talking about? Does all this sound unrealistic, like a little bit? Like, mm, look around, Benjamin. A lot of people think so. But if you're a Jesus follower, shalom is what you believe, is the destiny of the cosmos, of everything that is. It's what we own in our hearts to be true. Let's go to Isaiah 11. Let's go back to Isaiah 11 because out of the mouth of the children, we've already heard this. Let's go back to it. Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together, 
and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That might be one of the most beautiful descriptions of shalom, of wholeness, of the redemption that Jesus came to bring. Not just salvation for me, so that I can, air quotes, go to heaven when I die, but so that he can usher in redemption, shalom to everything, like Isaiah said. Now, some scholars downplay that passage because they, they say, well, within the context, he's writing about the Assyrians who were going to invade, and the kingdom was already cut in half, and so Jerusalem is the shoot. Okay, yes, I think so too. But you know what? Isaiah, he's usually writing about, he's usually writing one thing that means a lot of things. And he's usually writing about something that's in context in his time and something that is about an epic prophecy for all the cosmos at the same time. All of that to say, that shoot from Jesse's stump, back in verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Well, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. See, in the family tree of Jesus, so to speak, there was Jesse, the father of David, right? So why does this passage call it the stump, the stump of Jesse? Why isn't it the tree of Jesse? Well, because the family tree of Jesus would be cut down several times, right, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But what did verse 1 say? That a shoot would come from that stump. And we know now that that shoot is Jesus. So you can cut down the tree of redemption you can lay low the plan of shalom that God has for this world and for each one of us, but you can't kill the tree. The shoot will spring up. Simeon knew that no matter how many times some foreign superpower would come and cut down the tree of David, the family line, that the Redeemer would come. A shoot would sprout up like Charlie Brown's tree still green, still alive. See, this is what we believe when we have beheld and marveled at the coming of Jesus, that he is the green shoot of redemption that nothing and no one can kill, even if the tree looks like it's cut down. And believing this, owning this truth in our hearts, it changes us. It changes what we see. It changes how we see. It lights us up. It inspires us and fills us with hope. And it turns us out toward others. Just ask Anna. So just as soon as Simeon had snatched Jesus out of Mary's arms and gave him that epic blessing and then told Mary her soul would be pierced with grief, Thank you so much. But it was true, wasn't it? 
Then what happens? Into this moment walks an 84-year-old prophetess named Anna. Luke 2, verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, that's Mary Joseph, Jesus, and Simeon, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. What a beautiful end to this scene, to this moment in the story. What an incredible lady. This lady sees her Messiah, the shoot of Jesse, in this little baby boy, and she approaches, and she's overwhelmed with gratitude. And then it says that she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She told somebody. That's right. The first to proclaim to others that the Messiah Jesus had come was a faithful 84-year-old woman. How beautiful. I wonder if we could learn something from her, like old Simeon, that when we behold and marvel at our Jesus and own the truth of who he is and why he came in our hearts, that we're actually going to start naturally living that way. That this good news, the best of news, will be on our lips, in our lives, around our neighbors. So, my friends, where is your heart this morning? Have you stopped to behold the miracle of Christmas? Of a God that joined us so that we could join him? Have you marveled at the beauty and mystery of the way that he came? Have you believed that he came not just to save you, but to institute redemption and shalom, bringing the kingdom of God here and now. Have you heard the call this morning from our ancestors in the faith to wait with hope and that peace and gratitude and sharing the good news all will come when we own the Redeemer and His finished work in our hearts? I hope that we have. I hope that we have. Band, you can come on back up. And we'll pray. Jesus, you are something to behold. You are quite a sight to be seen. All glory and goodness and light and holiness. We're grateful for the stories that we have. Grateful for Simeon and Anna, the way that they were looking, watching and waiting, ready to behold your glory in the least likely places. Spirit, teach us how to be like them, how to do that, how to find redemption threads, 
and that peace of shalom and the light of your glory everywhere. And help us to turn and speak it and tell it and share it and live it right where we live, bringing the kingdom here and now, continuing the work of our Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.